a couple things come out. Not only, well, Ryan always talks about pattern. That the Old Testament, the Hebrews, they believe in this pattern that something happens in real life and it kind of and it kind of demonstrates God's purpose all the way to modern time. And Ryan talked about a few a few times about the the idea of the pattern. And on a personal level, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him unto righteousness. And that, we know that theme is carried all the way to the New Testament today, that we don't bring anything to this covenant, like in this case, Abraham, or God put Abraham into a, Abraham into a deep sleep. He couldn't bring anything to the table. It was a one-way covenant, but we what we bring is our faith. Now, Abraham wasn't perfect, because if you go in two verses uh, from now, in chapter 17 of Genesis, we know that Sarah, oh, we know the account that Sarah laughed when she heard that they were going to have a, uh, a child at their old age. But Abraham laughed too, and I guess I never really thought about that, but it says Abraham fell face down after God told him he was going to have a, have a son. Abraham fell down and laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man that is 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at 90 years and Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So he added, So Abraham wasn't perfect. His faith had a little chink in the armor as well. But then, of course, we all know the account. Later on, they have Isaac, right, the promised one. That was going to be the, one of the forefathers. And, and, and Abraham had to uh, take him up, right, to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And that faith, I mean, all of us can put ourselves in that position, that uh, incredible amount of faith. We know Abraham took three days to get to Mount Moriah. He went up there. He was ready to kill Isaac. And uh, we know, know the story. The Lord stopped Abraham from killing his son. And that's a true, that's what faith looks like. I mean, that is, that's just, uh, that boggles my mind. I don't know if I have that faith. But one thing I do love about the Holy Spirit is I always wondered what was going through Abraham's mind at the time. He was taking his only son from Sarah to sacrifice him. And the Holy Spirit in the book of Hebrews tells us, and I love this passage, tells us what it, kind of what Abraham was going through. So, Abraham, so Hebrews chapter 11, it's the faith chapter. We all know, very familiar scripture. And if you start on cha- uh, verse 8, it says, By faith, this is Hebrews 11, by faith... Abraham, when he called to go to a place, whoops, that's not right. I didn't highlight it. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, who had embraced the promises, was about, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. And this is what's impressive. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. That Abraham knew, trusted the promises, that knew that, okay, if I kill this son, even though in history, we up to this point of Abraham, God at least never recorded that he even rose anyone from the dead. This would have been the first account. And Abraham said, God has the problem, not me. If I... If I kill my son, God has a serious problem because he promised, he promised that to us. And I think, that's an, I think that's an impressive. And that's why Abraham is the father of our faith and why Paul uses him in Romans and, and, um, and the pattern carries through through the Old Testament. Well, we just got done with Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 2, it says, uh, the just shall live by faith. That ignited the Martin Luther and the Protestant movement and through Romans. And Paul was inspired also by Habakkuk that the just shall live by faith and it's that faith of Abraham that we bring that same faith to the table. So when we take communion, it's our faith. That's the only thing we bring to the table for this one-way covenant through our salvation. So with that, let us, uh, let us give thanks. Dear Father, as we take of the, once again take of the cup and take of, of the bread, that that this is in remembrance of your salvation that started three, 4,000 years ago. And you revealed yourself through the centuries leading up to Jesus Christ, who died on that cross, conquered the grave three days later, that through this, 
we, by faith, can approach your throne boldly. And when we leave this earth, we, we know you're a God of promises. Like in Abraham, we've got to be like Abraham to believe in those promises. That through this, we know once we die, we'll all meet in heaven someday. So we, we give your thanks and remembrance unto the cup and unto the wafer. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Let's pray for the offering. Dear Father, we just got done remembering your son and his death, his resurrection, and therefore we're justified through that faith in that. And now we're also going to show an outward faith of giving of our of our, our personal gain, which ultimately comes from you as well. And we want to give back, and so we ask that each one that offers whatever they can, we ask you to bless each and every one that gives and that uh, thy rewards are in heaven, that those treasures will be added to, our, to us in heaven. So we just want to be happy and cheerful givers. So just bless the, each individual here and also us as a collective group. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.
Good morning, church. It's good to have you here this morning. I don't know if it's these walls that just make the sound come bouncing back this way, but you guys sounded amazing this morning, singing really loudly. Which makes me happy when I see uh, see you guys sing loudly. <clears throat> Turn to the book of Luke this morning. We'll primarily be in Luke 13, uh, verses 31 to 35. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, that's where we're going to camp out most of our time. We're going to jump to a couple different places before that, but let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the many abundant blessings that you have have poured out upon us, that we who are broken and sinful, we who have turned our backs upon you, who have fled from your your mercy and your grace, still can be rescued by you, that you still love and care for us and call us continually to you. Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that your uh, spirit would be very present and known, that what you would have us learn would be uh, spoken loudly into our hearts. We pray this in in, in Jesus' precious name. So before we jump into our passage this morning, I think it helps us to have the context before we read, uh, just so as we go through this, I don't have to backtrack to to let you know what's happening. Uh, this passage is coming in uh, uh, maybe an extended section in the book of Luke of, of Jesus kind of cluing us into something that perhaps makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. If you turn back to the first verse in chat or the first couple verses in chapter 13 which we'll actually look at in depth next week uh, we see this this repent uh, or perish idea and i think this this kind of extended section of luke as jesus has turned his attention from from healing and and kind of establishing himself as 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 a miracle worker and as some some uh, person who has who kind of possesses this special authority from God, we have this, this attention, there's this shift from, from he's doing work to now he's got to teach us something very important. And I think it's this idea that there are really two, in the end, two types of people. I think in Revelation there are sheep and lambs. The sheep will go with Christ and the lambs will go and perish. There's this idea that unless we are rescued, saved, redeemed by the blood of Christ, we will we will perish. Now the reason why I say this makes us maybe uncomfortable is because we live in this world that tells us all the time that a truly loving God wouldn't allow anybody to perish. And I guess by perish, I mean would have an eternity and separation in hell. If God was truly loving, he wouldn't allow that. But I think what the Bible teaches us is if God is, in fact, truly loving, he must also be truly just. That without God's justice, God is not love. He's not love. And so we have kind of this extended, extended piece here where Jesus kind of, jumps back and forth. He's teaching some things. He's teaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's telling us some parables. But throughout, he tells us to repent or perish. He tells us that the way is narrow. The way to life is narrow and the way to death is wide. But The other thing that I think we have to get contextually speaking uh, in order to understand our passage more this morning happens at the end of chapter 11 in the first verse of chapter 12. I didn't put it in for you. I, I apologize. Uh, 
the end of chapter 11, Jesus, uh, or we, we read, Luke tells us here, he says, as uh, he went away from there, he being Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, laying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They're trying to trap Jesus into saying something that would make people not like him anymore. The Pharisees have, have found themselves to not just be, uh, not just hold differing opinions or differing viewpoints of Jesus, but to now stand in direct and purposed opposition to Christ. And then in the first part of chapter 12, the first verse of chapter 12, I think Jesus kind of responds here and he says, in the meantime, it says in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Essentially what Jesus is saying is don't, don't listen to the Pharisees. Because they're hypocrites. They might tell you to do good things, but their own actions aren't even the things that they're telling us to do. This is going to corrupt, and it's going to twist, and it's going to obscure, and it's going to move us away from the truth. So we can pretty safely say at this point that Jesus and the Pharisees are not on the same side. From both people's perspective. The Pharisees, they don't like Jesus. They haven't quite gotten to the point where they're ready to kill Jesus. That doesn't actually happen until, until Jesus is, is at Jerusalem, basically. They just want him to be stopped somehow. And so they're plotting and they're scheming and they're trying to deceive him. A foolish endeavor, but... And Jesus recognizes that if he allows these people to come in and teach his followers, something bad is going to happen. They're going to lead people astray. So this kind of sets the stage for us. Jesus and the Pharisees, they're at, they're at opposition. They're in opposition to each other. And Jesus is, is trying to teach us that if we don't trust in his work, as Matt very, very wonderfully pointed out to us this morning, uh, if, if we do not have faith in what he has done, we will perish. And so we pick up in chapter 13, verse 31. It says, At that very hour some Pharisees came to him or came and said to him, him being Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, Holy Spirit, we ask that your, your presence would be made known to us this morning in my way of teaching. In Jesus' name. So the very third, first thing that we come to is, is, is a seemingly confusing passage. We know that Jesus and the Pharisees, they're in opposition. And now all of a sudden, it seems like, it seems like the Pharisees are trying to protect Jesus. But let's, let's 
challenge ourselves here just a minute. Let's remember just for a second that at this point, the Pharisees, they're not ready to kill Jesus. They just want him gone. They want him out of the region. They want him away from them so that they can regain their popularity and regain their status and regain their, their importance and their authority. And, and Jesus, is, he's, if he goes somewhere else, we're good. And so they warn Jesus to leave. They get what they want. They're, they're most likely, now we can't say this with 100% certainty, but we can, we can speculate pretty seriously, and I, and I think probably rightfully, we can, we can say kind of safely, they, they're not really worried about Jesus' health. They just want him out of there. Now on the other hand, we learn something strange about Herod. Herod has just recently lost a lot of credibility with the people of Israel because he puts to death John the Baptist. John the Baptist is like Jesus in that he is immensely popular and he's teaching this repentance and baptism and, and he's calling people to change. He's very much like what Jesus is doing, but John has something different than Jesus does because John isn't as hated as much. Pretty much everybody loves John. Now, not everybody is, is necessarily agrees with everything he's doing, but they're pretty much on his side. And Herod, he puts him to death. Now, he puts him to death for foolish reasons. I'm not going to get into that story. If you would like to learn that, jump into the Gospels and you can find that story. Herod puts him to death because his wife, or his daughter rather, asks him to. And he loses a lot of credit. Herod wants credit. He wants people to like him. He wants people to follow him. He wants, people, he wants to have a really good relationship with the Jewish people who he rules over. Because it's not as fun to rule over people who don't really like you. And now he's going to threaten to kill Jesus. Now, the people love Jesus. The Pharisees, they're, they're not so keen on Jesus. But the people love Jesus. And so if Herod really wants to kill Jesus, it would be political suicide. The people would rise up against him. You're just killing all the people we like. So I don't think Herod actually wants Jesus to die. I think he rather wants to scare Jesus away. So he gets the Pharisees, who he knows uh, will will go and try to drive Jesus away also and say, Hey, but how about you tell how about you tell Jesus that I'm going to kill him? That'll get him out of here. And then we have something very strange. This passage is fascinating. Really for one reason. Jesus is very different in this passage than he is in some others. This is the only place in all of Scripture where Jesus responds to somebody with contempt. Jesus says, you go and tell that fox, Herod. Are any of you offended at this point? We don't use this phrase in our, in our everyday language. We would use something maybe a little bit different. And I'm not trying to say that this is apples to apples comparison here, but I think, I think the weight of, of this is. It would be very similar to somebody, you go and tell that son of a female dog, whatever. This is not a nice thing to say about a person. A fox is crafty and, and cunning and sneaky. But a fox also has absolutely no value. They're insignificant and they're worthless. And they really don't, they're not really that dangerous. They're, they're, they're violent only whenever it is completely and totally safe for them to do so. Like a wolf, even though a person might be near a sheep, will still attack the sheep. Because they're larger and power, more powerful. and They're just built that way. Foxes aren't. And so in the ancient world, in, in Jerusalem, in, or, or the Judean region in particular, they use this phrase to... Talk about a person as if they were 
cunning and crafty and deceitful and more than that, insignificant and maybe even worthless. You know, Jesus has called Herod this. It's challenging. I think, though, it's challenging because we often think of the attitude we might have when we hurl a curse at somebody. And we recognize that from the depth of that statement, we are sinning. I bet there's a rare time whenever you have called somebody uh, a not-so-nice word where in your heart you weren't sinning because of anger, frustration, and hatred. We know the rest of Scripture teaches us that Jesus is sinless through His life. So Jesus is not sinning here. What is happening? I think it's exactly what I am trying to point out here in what's leading up to this passage. There is a reality to the two different types of people. There are people who will be saved by the blood of Jesus through faith and faith alone. And then there are people who will always and forever stand in opposition to God and His plan. They will not just do it passively. It won't be accidental. It will be purposed and malicious. This is Herod. And this teaches us that God's love does not trump His justice. It doesn't outweigh it and eliminate it. The biblical story teaches us that Herod, he does not have a come to Jesus moment. And Jesus knows this. And Herod is his enemy. And so therefore he treats him as such. As an enemy. Now, this has nothing to do with the fact that Jesus still loves Herod. See, this is the challenge that we have. This is the difficulty that we wrestle with because we cannot, we cannot function where those two realities exist together. We are finite beings with a finite amount of emotional giving. So if somebody becomes our enemy, it is very hard to love them. Now, loving an enemy doesn't mean that you accept what they've done, doesn't mean that you're on their side. It means that you have deep and abiding compassion for them. So Jesus says, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. Now, this could mean that Jesus is going to leave the day after tomorrow. But more likely, this is another figure of speech. Where Jesus is going, I'm going to leave in a short period of time. Maybe it's in two days. Maybe it's in two weeks. But it's a short period of time. But in essence, what Jesus is saying here, he says, go and tell that fox that I'll leave whenever I'm done with the task that I'm here to do. I don't really care if you threaten me with death or not. Because for Jesus, Jesus knows that Herod's threats are empty. Not not the least of which is because he knows that Herod is not actually going to try to kill him. Because, again, that would be political suicide. But because it doesn't even matter if Herod does try. Because that is not the plan. I'm going to do what I'm going to do here. And when I'm done doing that thing that I am supposed to do here, I'm going to go on to the next thing. Now, Jesus responds to Herod this way, and I think then Jesus responds to the Pharisees in the next verse, in 33. I think this makes sense, that he's not no longer talking to Herod, he's now talking to the Pharisees who are trying to deceive him into leaving. Nevertheless, I go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, he's saying in essence, the exact same thing. 
But I think he aims it this time at the Pharisees because the Pharisees will recognize what he's talking about when he says that a prophet doesn't die outside of Jerusalem. But he says the same thing. Today and tomorrow, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And on the, on the third day or in a short period of time, I'm going to leave whenever it's time for me to leave. And oh, by the way, even if you want to take my life, you won't be able to. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. This is a confusing phrasing. Apparently the Greek behind this is confusing. But essentially what Jesus is saying is that for, for a prophet to die outside of Jerusalem loses something. Jesus is the, the, the prophet. He's the ultimate prophet, right? So Jesus is talking about himself here. It, it, would, be, it would be like saying, so follow me here for a second. I'm not advocating this, so hear that first. It would be like if the president was assassinated in Creston, Ohio, versus New York City. Okay, the whole world would know, right? We we gotta we gotta recognize the whole world would know, and the whole world would remember. But only the people of Creston, Ohio, would be reminded of that fact every single day, and it would have less of an impact if it happened in New York City, where every single day, what, twelve million people would be reminded of it. They walk past the place that it happened. Jesus needs to die in Jerusalem, not just because it symbolizes the sacrificial lamb, not just because it's near to the temple, but also because it needs to have the greatest impact on all the world. What profit is it if a prophet should die away from Jerusalem? I think, once again, this is a subtle jab at the Pharisees' soon attempts to take Jesus' life. Now, they don't know that that's what eventually is going to take place, but Jesus certainly does. He knows that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to die there. He's not saying, I'm not going to be put to death. Rather, he's saying, actually, I'm not going to be put to death here. I'm going to be put to, get to death where it will truly and amazingly affect all of human history from this point forward forever. And I think it's at this point that Jesus' mind travels to Jerusalem. I want to point something out just very briefly. That verses 34 and 35 are the lament over Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to lament over Jerusalem. If you have a subtitle in your Bible, that's probably what it is, a lament over Jerusalem. If we would look at this same story or the same account here in the book of Matthew, it happens in a different place. Now, the reason why this is okay is because the, the Gospels are not written to be chronological. They're written to be theological. They're telling us something about God. They're telling us something about Christ Jesus. And at this point, in, in the progression that Luke is making here, talking about the, the, the way to heaven is narrow and the way to hell is wide, that if you don't repent, you will perish. He's in the, in the midst of this. He wants to teach us something about what it means to follow after him. He has just given us the example of Herod, who is the enemy of God, who when Jesus is questioned by him in his trial, he simply ignores him. And the Pharisees who are deceived and are deceivers and who are in opposition to him as well, we have this, these enemies of God. These people, if nothing changes, who will certainly perish. And then Jesus, he looks to Jerusalem. He thinks of Jerusalem. Oh, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. That's where I'm going to perish. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. It's almost always how a lament begins with some kind of woe. Some kind of an emotional response. A deep, longing, hurting pain. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. The city that killed that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, 
And you are not willing. Jesus is the, the person of the Godhead. He's the representation of all things God manifest on this earth, Trinitarianly speaking. That's not the right word. But. And so all the times in the Old Testament when God is screaming to the people of Israel to just come and rest in me and the people don't. This is what Jesus is talking about. For 1,500 years, I have been crying out to you to let me protect you. And you have turned and ran and spit on me. I think it's, 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 it's shocking, really, to think about the imagery that Jesus is using here. Because there is, there is nothing, I think there is nothing more powerful and scary than a mother who is going to protect her young. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the value of the young. You ever sneak into a chip, chicken coop and there's little chicks? Those passive, insignificant chickens start to get a little bit... I mean, they're not dangerous because they're chickens, but they start to get a little bit defensive. You ever been walking through the woods? We went, we went to, to Gatlinburg, right? This is where we went, Gatlinburg, a couple years ago, and there was... There was a bear, a mother bear. What do you do when you see a mother bear? Instinctually, you know this. You look for its cub because what happens if you find your, yourself in the middle in the middle of a bear and its cub? You're probably going to be mauled, maybe to death. Because a mother bear, regardless of the value of that cub, will protect its child. Missy's not a violent person, but. I, I, I challenge you to, to, I don't challenge you to harm my child. She'll get defensive. I promise it to you. Jesus is telling us this is what God has been trying to do for a thousand, fifteen hundred years. And the people of Israel have turned, have fled, have ran away and disregarded his words, his warnings, his calls. And so Jesus says, behold, your house is forsaken. Those words should carry some pretty immense weight. Your house is forsaken, and, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think it can be easy to look at this particular quote here, because Jesus is quoting Psalm 118. It's the same thing that's quoted whenever Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It would be easy to get confused that this is what Jesus is talking about. Or he's just talking about whenever I enter into Jerusalem, they're going to say this and then they'll see me. It's not what he's talking about. At least I don't think so. He's not talking about a physical sight of Jesus. He's talking about being again in relationship with the mother hen. The people of Israel have turned their backs upon, upon God. And so they are forsaken. There are many Jewish people who will perish today and who have perished over the past 2,000 years not knowing Christ as their Savior who unfortunately, sadly, and devastatingly are not with Him now. Let me say it maybe more bluntly who are eternally in hell. I think Jesus laments here, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, much like we should lament in hearing the news from New Zealand. The last count was 49 people were murdered in New Zealand because of hate and racism. Because, let's, let's say it more poignantly, because of evil. I hope that we all mourned this week in hearing there are 49 people who by their association with 
a false religion will be in hell. Our sin, our brokenness is not temporary and insignificant. It's massive and eternal. There are many of us who are in this room who can say with the utmost confidence that they are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And to that we can all say a resounding amen. There are also some in this room who do not know that love. Who are separated from the Father by a massive canyon. But I think there is hope in this passage. I think as we look at this, we have, to, we have to remind ourselves of the massive weight of our sin. As we look at this, we cannot, we cannot, we can't be idle. Even those of us who call upon Christ as our Lord and Savior, who can say with, with confidence that I am saved by the blood of Christ, and who can, who can stand confident and assured in that truth. Let us not be passive. Let's not be passive like the people of Israel were passive, but those of you who do not, do not have that relationship with Christ, it is not for another day. It is for right this very moment. Turn to the mother hen who has her arms very much open to receive you. Jesus tells us, look, your, your house is forsaken. Romans chapter 9 teaches us that the people of Israel, they are forsaken. There is a, there is a chasm now between, between God and the people of Israel, but that is not permanent. In fact, it is there for the reason of bringing them into his arms. The same is true for you. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, there is a chasm between you and him. But it's not there because you are condemned. It is there because he's calling you to receive his work. Now at this point you might be asking, you might be saying to yourself, it doesn't matter. I'm too sick and broken. No, you're not. I'm too far gone. No, you're not. Tomorrow I'll be better. No, you won't. Jesus does not come. He tells the Pharisees, I didn't come to save those who are well. I came to save those who are sick. And I'm pretty confident that almost every single person in this room, probably every single person in this room, will tell you that, that even after you, they became followers of Christ, they still make mistake after mistake after mistake. They're not perfect yet. Nor do any of us think that we will be soon. Unless we're called home soon. There are no more excuses. Place your trust in Him. And say with the rest of us, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. For He is our Savior. Today and always. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your, your spirit would convict us who already know you to be fervent. To be moved by the knowledge that we are saved. More than that, Lord. I pray that those people who are in this room today who would hear these words today would give themselves over to you to be saved.
It's in your precious and holy Son, Jesus' name. couple things coming up. Uh, again, look at the bulletins. And the website does now have 
all of our events and stuff. So uh, if you don't ever, if you didn't get the bulletin or whatever, and you are curious about what's coming up, you can always go to our, our website, it's ChristChurchWeb.com. Um, we do have a couple things going on, uh, or not going on today, a couple things, but we have the teenage class is going on today.